All right, back to uh, <laughs> this is the worst episode ever. <laughs> this is going to be four hours long. Yeah, well, no, I'm going to wrap it up soon. Um, uh, but it's summertime. <laughs> I need long episodes. Um, you know, didn't I do a two parter with you last time? Yeah, son yeah, of a I, bitch. I think we're incapable of making one that's under two hours. Oh well, maybe we'll do that again. Uh, I wanted to talk about custom fonts in con- in uh, yeah. Overcast, and you're using a font called Concourse uh, by Matthew Butterick. Yep, love it. Great font face. I remember talking to you about this font. Oh my god, it might have been a year ago. I remember you just like running it up the flagpole, like, "Hey, what do you think about this?" And I was like, "Oh my god, that is beautiful." Yeah, I, when I about about last summer, yeah, about a year ago, I was looking at tons of fonts uh, for Overcast, looking at various interface fonts. Uh, with Instapaper, I was all using I was using almost all serif fonts for all the reading faces. Uh, there were some sans serif ones that were more popular, but I always liked the serif ones better uh, when they were large, like on an iPad and everything. It, it felt like serif was somehow the proper solution for you know reading text. It should be in serifs because serifs are old and fancy. Um, and, and they kind of like print. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I kind of I kind of got burnt out on them though. And whenever I would do I would design something with a serif font, I would always think it should look better, but then it didn't actually look better, and it didn't work as well on screens, or it looked good big but not small, or something like that. Like there was, there, there were problems with serifs um, in practice. So I, I burned out on them. So I was looking at good sans serif interface fonts. Uh, for overcast and the and one of the problems with sans serifs is that um there aren't that many distinct styles that are generalizable to look good enough in an interface as an interface font um maybe this is a terrible statement but that's that's how i see the market. no i think it's true yeah, well and, and i i also think that and on another end of it is there's an awful lot of them that are all that, that are really good fonts really good fonts that i like but they're too close to Helvetica to yes. justify not using Helvetica. It's like an uncanny valley situation, specifically given iOS. Like in the general world, if you want to use Franklin Gothic instead, or you want to use Universe, which is a great, great Helvetica-ish font, uh, great, fantastic font. Um, but in the context of iOS, where Helvetica is the ubiquitous ever-present default if you're going to use something different it should be different enough that it's oh yeah it's a different font exactly i mean there's an awful lot that are ruled out on on those grounds exactly and and yeah i mean and i i looked at tons of fonts uh from big and small foundries and designers uh, and i had that problem with many of them that it was like you know this is just too close uh to helvetica and it just looks kind of weird not being helvetica if it's this close yeah um so I looked at a bunch. What what I liked about Concourse um, the most was that it was narrow, and and not by not by a massive amount. It doesn't look like a condensed version of a font. Like you know, a lot of these fonts would have condensed variants or even uh, compressed for like the super condensed, very condensed, very condensed, ultra narrow, or whatever. Um, and and uh, Concourse is narrower without looking like a narrow font. And what that allowed me to do is fit more characters on a line. And for for an app that I knew was going to be used primarily on iPhones, where I had to display lots of like one line titles for things, 
that is actually a really nice feature to have. Right, because then it makes it a little bit less likely that you're going to have to put ellipses in there and truncate it. Correct. And even if you do, you'll at least get more, a little bit more of the actual title in there. Right, I'll at least get like one or two more words out of it. Um, and and it, it had a it had a great balance on screen of size versus weight, and it came in it comes in like nine different weights, and it also has this awesome small caps variant. Yeah. Uh, which I which think is used is to awesome. great effect. Yeah, it's one of my favorite little things in Concourse. Yeah, says, says the guy who who got a small caps <laughs> option into an app that you know for text editing. Yeah. Um, no, I always like your small caps titles. No, I mean like it, and and that gave me like the the pairing of of like you know full full regular text as like you know medium medium weight regular text as like a body and title font, and then a thinner, usually lighter in color, small caps font for like a caption font or like a subtitle yeah. and then using it on the buttons and, and the links like that. I, I found that combination early on and I liked it so much and it yeah. just, it works so well for an interface to have like that, like that, like two, the two different styles that can serve those two different roles and have them pair nicely on screen together. Yeah. And I think it works, you know, it, it, it fits naturally with what is clearly your taste in interfaces, you know, in your personal style. And I think, you know, and I think you'll probably agree with me that iOS 7 has been very good for you personally as an app developer who does the whole thing yourself for the most part. Uh, and and I'll cover that asterisk in a, just one quick second. But you're like a one one-man show. You did the development, you did the back end, and you did the the interface. And you know the the some of the stuff that was expected pre iOS seven in an app was things that you couldn't do. You know the stuff that it has to be done like in Photoshop, right? At textures, right. You know, materials, stuff like that. I, I I am not a graphical artist, right? And so and I could not do those things. Instapaper maybe got away with it and was a good app for you to do with your your abilities as a designer because it was so you know literally just the text. It was all about the text. But there's other ways where maybe Instapaper circa, uh, you know, 2009, 2010, maybe should have not in, while you're reading, but while you weren't reading, should have had more visual oomph to fit in. Exactly. Um, whereas iOS 7 really plays into the like the skill sets that you have. Yeah, I mean, I, iOS 7 was extremely lucky for me because like this, this shift happened that that departed from all the things I couldn't do myself, uh, all these like heavily textured, heavily graphically themed apps from, from six and earlier. Um, although even by six, it was fading out. So really from five and earlier, uh, all of that went out of style it, very quickly. <laughs> and, uh, and then what was brought in was this, this visual language that I could do myself. And I was not expecting that at all. And I was very, very happy about that. Uh, because, you know, otherwise like the magazine, I designed with a lot of help from Pacific Helm, um, and, and the magazine was a very simple app, and and I mean the design work you know numbered in the thousands of dollars. To have a professional designer help me on Overcast would have been probably easily tens of thousands of dollars worth of design work, and it also would have taken longer. So you know it would have been more expensive, and then I would have had to I would have had to keep going back and forth with the designer to work out some of these things, and it, the whole process would have been more complicated, more expensive, longer. You know, it it just would have been harder for me, and yeah. and to be able to do it all myself, 
is so valuable because I can tweak things immediately. I can I can visualize something in my head and just do it. I can see how things look. I can play with it. Uh, and then I can do it all myself, and it all costs me nothing except my own time, which I'm already, you know, kind of getting for free in a way. Um, and it just and suits so your personality, it, I think, clearly. It you does. Know? You know, like, one of the reasons why I never went the whole, like, full-textured iOS 5 app route is that that wasn't really my thing. That wasn't really my style. Like, I would use the apps that did that, but I, I was never that into that style. Whereas this style, this is really me. This is, And it's just it just so happens that what I like and what I can do just became fashionable a year ago. Yeah. Uh, the one thing you did get help on, and here's my asterisk from a couple seconds ago, was the app icon, right? Right. And that logo shape, the the, right. the tower inside the circles. And the, yeah, that was all Louis Mantia. Right. At Pacific Helm. Yeah. Or not. Yeah. Yep. Pacific Helm slash Louis Mantia. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great. I love the icon. I know that the icons are... are uh, God, everybody will have an opinion on an icon, and I'm hearing I, from all of them. I'm well. That's that. <laughs> this was this was my question. Is to me, this is such a great icon, and it does everything an icon should do. Where it's recognizable, it's distinctive, it's it gives it a brand. It does all these nice things. I happen to also think that it's just an attractive shade of orange. I like it. I've always been a fan of orange. Um, if ever there was an icon that might be beyond, you know, oh, this icon sucks. Maybe this was it, but you're saying it's not. It, it does not pass. Love it. Okay. Yeah, most people love it. However, I'm hearing from all the ones who don't. Um, I'm, I'm hearing from people who do, which is why I know that most people love it. <laughs> but but there's there's a handful of people who are, like, extremely offended by it. Like, I... I I, I you know not to get all Ben Brooks on you but I like I've I've never cared about icons that strongly like yeah I mean I'll I will notice a bad icon for an app but I'm not gonna like make my usage decision based on which one has the best icon like that's I don't like I I would rather have a good app even if the icon's awful I think uh, people people who have opinions on apps in general and just want to express their opinions will often icons the app icon gets a disproportionate share of that feedback, right? Like you said, it's because it's not, it probably is like if you really had to use a beautiful, great app that had what you thought was a lousy icon, it's like, well, that's the best problem I could have with this app. Right. It's like, yeah, exactly. You know, or it's like if, if the app has a bad name, you know, it's like, okay, well, yeah, you can control that a little bit, but who cares really? Yeah. It's, you know, ideally, you know, we have a great name and a memorable name and, you know, but if it has a lousy name, who cares? Uh, it just seems like it's so much better than having deep problems with the software itself, but yet icons get all this feedback. And I think it's because it's just so neatly encapsulated and so petty that it just draws, you know, it's like the old adage about, um, uh, uh, politics in college universities, like Woodrow Wilson was, you know, always said that being president of the United States was easier than being president of Princeton because uh, the politics there was just so meaningless that made it <laughs> made it it was worse. Uh, something like that. Yeah. Um, and the icon here, like I, I almost didn't use this icon. Um, I, I went back and forth, and and I, I think it's easy to. It's easy for for people to get angry at modern app icons for iOS seven, because iOS seven totally changed what icons are supposed to look like, and the new style is is 
much more polarizing than the old style ever was. Yeah. And so the new style, a lot of the rage that you get for a new app icon is rage against the iOS 7 general aesthetic for icons. And what this icon did, thanks to Louis, because, um, you know, Louis is 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 uh, one of those people who, like, he, he knows which rules to break and when to break them. And, and, and that's unusual. And it's one of the things that makes Wix a good designer. I actually think that it could have, it would translate very well to the old world. Like if you, if we took this app back in time two years, you'd have to redo the whole app interface, but you could use this icon. And exactly. maybe, you know, just a little bit of 3D shading around the edges or something like that. But Exactly. Uh, you know, and and, and I, I, like this icon, like what I like about it, like Louis was, Louis was interested about using the white as the inner color, as, as that circle, the inner color, and then having this black outline that like goes into the shape. Like it's most iOS seven icons have like one fewer color basically. <laughs> um, right. And, and this like Louis, Louis tried this out and I'm like, you know, that actually looks really nice. Now I wanted to go even further at first. Um, if you look at the, the overcast FM Twitter account, that artwork is, I, I asked Louis to take this icon and make something that might make a good like podcast album art background, so I could maybe show it as the default album art for something that didn't have uh, art. And I liked it so much that for a while, and for Beta One, this was the app icon. And you guys all hated it, and that, and then and you convinced me not no, to use it. I, and that's fine, but but like I I even like I like doing things that are mostly conforming to style, so it looks good, but just like poking someone in the ribs a bit with some part of it because. Oftentimes, that's what makes it good. And so, like, you know, Louis did it with, like, having the white inner color and having this black outline around around that inner shape. I, I would have pushed it even further if I was totally unchecked by reason and logic. And then, you know, I, I tr- so I tried this, like, fiery textured version of the background a little bit um, in the background, or, I mean, as the uh, Beta 1 icon. And, and everyone hated it except me. And so I changed it back to this, and I was like, you know, okay, actually, you're right. This does look better. Having been but, there, I don't think hate, – hate's not fair. I think it was just every, – everybody <laughs> was just like – I think everybody was just like, no, nah, you're nuts. The other one's better. Right. Trust me. Everybody and then, like, this is – like, I, I work best in an environment like that where I am able to try crazy things – but I have some people who can like edit me a little bit and say, you know what, actually, you know, that that's a little bit far. You got to pick your battles. And I think part of what makes somebody a good beta tester is whether they know how to pick their battles. And therefore, in other words, that, that they're only going to be adamant about things they genuinely feel adamant about. And they're going to, they'll, they'll offer suggestions or I wish, Hey, I wish this were like this, but if they don't feel that strongly about it and you disagree, they just let it go. And they'll, but they'll, and they won't give up though. And they'll keep sending that feedback they won't, you know, their feelings won't be hurt because you took one of their things the wrong way. But I would do that. I w- if you if your two option choices for the icon were one that was good and one that was bad, and you you insisted on the bad one, I would have written you privately and said, you know, made my case for the good one. Whereas if you had picked this icon, I, I would I would have you know given you my two cents, and eh, I think the other one's better. And if you disagreed, then I would have never said it again. Yeah, but I probably wouldn't have brought it up on this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean like I, like ultimately like i'm i'm glad i tried this other icon yeah. uh because it was pushing that boundary so but people I, can but so like, you got to keep it up you can't le- take it off the twitter account now though. i know at least yeah. for a couple of weeks while That's the show right. is is uh green i mean i i like it on twitter it adds a little bit oh. more personality all know? right uh two more things i want to talk about one how long it took you to make the app 
sounds like it took from your write up on marco.org it took about 14 months with maybe a little bit of work that you'd done before that yeah the audio engine i prototyped earlier than that like about but two you years had a ago, you know spring you said spring 2013 and you shipped in the app store this week in the mid- middle of july 2014 yeah so yeah about about 14 months yeah so i'll tell you this and i mean this i'm not buttering you up because you're my friend and because you're on my show one of the things I really like best about this app is that to me it feels like a 2.0. It does not feel like a 1.0 app. And, Thanks. I mean, and, in, in many ways, that's because of the beta. Because like, like what I think what I shipped for beta one was like a 1.5. Yeah, yeah, maybe it, it was a remarkably productive beta. Uh, that is true. But even then, it, it was polish afterwards, though. And to me, and maybe again, it's Vesper colored eyes, where we shipped first after a couple of months without sync, and then spent well, the majority of this year to date, overwhelmingly, doing sync. And then, you know, another way to put it is that, you know, maybe Vesper 1.0 didn't really ship until last month when we shipped the version with sync. And we had a version that was usable, and I don't regret it, none of us regret it, but it never really, um, it wasn't, it clearly wasn't complete without some kind of online sync. And I also think it's interesting that it took about the same amount of time. You know, it's somewhere a little bit over a year to ship a good app that has an a, a online sync companion to it. Yeah, and maybe for me, maybe, maybe that's streaming. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But I don't know. There's a certain, you know, because you could have shipped a podcast client that didn't have the online component that was more like a lot of other ones, you know, just to ship it sooner and have it do it. And you could have shipped a version that didn't have the custom audio stuff that just helped you manage your podcasts, but didn't have the custom audio stuff first. Um, uh, to me, you picked you you picked off two or three really difficult things: the custom audio engine and the complete online version. Um, that I I. To me, it shows that it, it it feels like it clearly must have taken you over a year. Like, I don't think you should feel like you were late. I know you you gave yourself a hard time that back in September, you thought you were six months away from shipping. <laughs> I yeah. I thought you were out of your mind when you said that at XOXO. I was like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, he's not going to ship for two years. Yeah, so I mean, I, and, and it's, you know, I... It, it's, it's interesting. There's two sides of this. I mean, number one, I'm very proud of what I shipped. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy with how it went. Number two, though... I was shipping this into an extremely mature market. Yeah. And so over the last 24 hours, I have heard so many people who are who are very happy with it, but I've also heard so many people who uh who expect a lot more because like if you're it, it doesn't matter that it's a 1.0. Right. It matters that I'm shipping a podcast app to the iOS App Store in 2014 and the and the bar's raised. Yeah, and, that's true. And shipping it into a market full of these years old apps. And although actually Castro is only one year old, roughly, and Castro is one of the most popular apps for iOS. Oh yeah, um, and I'll by, bet it's. And I'll, I'll I'll bet it's also even more disproportionately popular with listeners of this show. It's a great app, almost it, certainly. It's it yeah. a fantastic app. Um, I, I would I wouldn't be surprised if a majority of people listening to us talk right now are using either Overcast or. Castro probably Castro first because if only because it's older and, and overcast because everybody who reads my site's an early adopter. It's very possible, and and you know, and I I like Castro because Castro and I I really don't think are competing for the same people. 
Yeah, um, I think that's very because true. it's there's there are two very different takes on an app. It's it's like Twitterific versus Tweetbot. You know, like it's it's these two very different styles, different sets of priorities, um, so, you know, different features exclusive to one or the other. Um, I I don't really see them as like a cutthroat competitor for the same people. Yeah. I see as both doing two very different takes on the same problem that are going to appeal to mostly non-overlapping circles of people. And the other thing you did that I think is pretty nice, and I hope it catches on, I've never seen it before, though, is you've got a section. Is it in the settings or the about screen? Um, where you Settings. Where you I already say, what you're going to say. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's so great. It's so Marco. And Whisk, I think Whiskas said to me the other day privately because he thinks it's going to – he thinks like by next year everybody's going to have this, uh, or at least everybody in our circle. You have a section. You're like, hey, Overcast is not for you try these other great apps. And you've got a list of five other iOS podcasting apps. Uh, I think it's five. I think so, yeah. Castro, Downcast. uh, Instacast, Pocketcast, Podcatcher, or Podwrangler. Right. And do you randomize the order? Yeah, every time the screen loads, it shows it in a random order. So there's no alphabetical bias and there's no... There's no friendship bias. Right, no friendship bias. But here's five apps... um, that you might want to try if this app is not meeting your needs as, as a podcast app. And it's great. And it's, it's part of the genius. Part of the reason I think it's genius is, is somewhere out there, there's marketing, somebody with a real marketing title, capital M marketing in their (laughs) background, who's choking right now thinking this is insane. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You never, why would you ever, you know, (laughs) you know, you, there's no thing on the back of a can of Coke that says, don't like the taste, try a Pepsi. And with the logo, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and instructions for the nearest way to go try one. Here's the quickest way to go try a Pepsi. Um, yeah. But I think apps are different, right? <laughs> it's like you're showing it to people who already have the app on their phone, right? You've got them, right? If you if if the app is for them, you've got them. They've they've downloaded the app, they've put it on their phone, and they're even checking out the settings. If you aren't making them happy, why not? show them the other apps yeah that and that was kind of that was kind of the rationale there was like you know i'm not going to pretend like there's no other apps in this category like that's you know that that doesn't you know that's just stupid i'm not i'm not going to pretend like i'm the first podcast app on the app store and uh and i think it's a way to to help everyone it it, it helps them potentially by by getting them sales um and it helps me by by making people respect me and my app even more and and it's like there's no downside to this um the fact is if you want to try every one of these podcast apps you're spending less than 20 bucks you know like it's we're not talking about major investments huge lock-in like i know like as we've been talking about like all these different expectations people have of podcast apps and how they want things to behave um i know as a user of these things as a listener of podcasts I know that you know the, that certain apps will just fit you, and certain ones just won't. And I don't want someone to be using my app if they hate it. You know, like that's like I I don't want to like force them to use my app if there's a better one out there. And uh, so you know, hey, I'd rather I'd rather you be happy. Like I've with Instapaper, I I talked about a little bit a little bit about this on ITP this week, so I've, I won't be too overlapping here. But with Instapaper, um, by by the time I sold it, I was getting about half of the money from the uh, optional subscription, which was a dollar a month, and you got almost nothing for it. And I advertised it that way. 
and it was it was mostly a way to just like you know give me more money if you feel like it that was basically it and to be making almost half your income from that is crazy and i was way more than i ever expected and the reason that worked was because over time i had built up a surplus of goodwill among my customers by giving them free updates all the time and everything and you know but just by giving them more than giving them more value than what they spent on the app i had built up a surplus of goodwill and so when i put up a thing saying hey you can give me more money if you want Many of them did. Hmm. And so I feel like, you know, like, like goodwill is something you can monetize. And that's, that sounds awful, I know. But, like, it, <laughs> if you put it in better terms, like, like it, it will be returned to you. Like, it, it comes around. And not, you know, not completely. Not everyone's going to give you money for nothing. But, but a decent portion of it, more than you probably think, will come around. And so being good to people is an important part of a business model. It's, it's you know, it's, in addition to just being a nice, cool thing to do, it's also smart I think it's the, it's the only way to approach it with any kind of interest in the long term. And my long term, I, I have trouble thinking more than five years ahead. Five years to me seems like a long way off. Um, but it's almost certain that I'd, I'm still going to be writing Daring Fireball and probably still doing this show. Uh, uh you know, probably still working with Dave and Brent on something, some app with Q Branch. You know, maybe Vesper will be not done, but but um, you know, s- move aside to the next app or something right. like that. Um, but the only you know, it, so many ways of doing business. You could, you're, you're not they're not thinking that many, even five years ahead, right? Because it's like you're going to burn through goodwill, right? You can't you can't last long at all while you're burning through goodwill. I think in exactly. any business. And it's, you know, it's just a short-sighted, let's just burn through goodwill for 18 months and then see if somebody will buy us because we have a lot of users mentality. Here's another question I had sort of related to the last is pricing. And I know that you've spent a lot of time thinking about this and you've come up with the app is free. There's only one version of it. It's you just get it. You download it for free. You can use it you can use it forever for free yep but you pay there's only one in-app purchase it's right now it's 4.99 that's it and you buy that and it unlocks uh, a bunch of cool features yep that's it I, I i thought about so many different models uh i at various times in the last like you know six months to a year i've i've been mentally committed to a pay what you want model uh, with multiple buckets that you, you know you just pay something anything and if you pay anything at all i give you all the features but you can pay like three different levels right i also thought about the same thing with subscriptions same thing with subscriptions but named pledges because you know using like npr terminology like public radio terminology because this is about podcasts and it's, oh you can be a pledging member maybe that would make more people do it who knows um also thought about paid up front Free with ads, free with Squarespace advertising in, inside the app, uh, all sorts of stuff like that. And I, I came up with, relatively towards the end of development is when I settled on this. It was a very recent decision. Um, I just came up with this because I realized like the more complicated I make it, the fewer people are going to do it. And, and the more headaches I will have dealing with it. Support headaches, you know, customer expectations, not matching what they're, what they're getting, stuff like that just was not... It was not going to be worth complexity. And so I went with just, okay, five bucks and I purchase unlocks limits, period. 
a very simple old model, uh, relatively old in the iOS world at least, but you know, a, re- a simple model that would give me the most flexibility to um, to do things in the future. Like I can I can make a, a web payment form so that people who can't use in-app purchases for whatever reason can can use the web version and buy it there. Stuff like that, and you know, it's easy to support. And it's clear to the customers what they're getting and what they're paying for, and and when they're going to be paying, and how much they're going to be paying. Yeah, you know, the, any any kind of subscription or donation type model, it becomes less clear to people. Okay, what am I paying for? How much will I be charged? Is this forever or just for a year or what? And uh, and you do it without yeah. thinking much in summer of 2014, and then all of a sudden in summer of 2015, when you're charged again, or you're reminded, you know, by iOS or however, you know, the the magnet. Like, why is this thing that I I haven't used this app in eleven months? Why is it trying to charge me? Right, and then you, you send forget an emails it. with the developer and demand right. a refund, which they can't give you. So yeah, it's it's a mess. Right. Uh, so I, this method was just way easier um, for everybody, for me and for the customers, and I think that ease will result in better sales. There was this heyday. I mean, we've talked about it. You and I have probably talked about it on this show uh, and other shows. You know, we've all talked about it. Everybody who's involved in indie apps in general has talked about it in the post app store world where, yes, we've been exposed to a massive market, and especially for those of us who were in the Mac before, way bigger than we ever could have imagined before. And now it's getting to the point where maybe it's even as big in terms of people as, as even Windows was as a market size in terms of people. Uh, which is amazing, and it's a great opportunity, and we've destroyed the one thing that we found before that worked as a way to get people to buy it, which was to let you try the app for free and then pay for it if you want. And I feel like you've used this in-app purchase to be, to me, it's like I thought about it. Like you announced, you know, you know, like here's how I'm going to charge for it. And I thought about it, and I was like, this seems very, very obvious. This seems like this is the way to go. You get lots of people to try it with no risk, and then if they like it, they'll buy it. Because I thought that the, um, you know, it seemed like a good line you drew on what you get when you pay for it. Because you know, it seems like a no-brainer to me. I don't. Yeah, know. I think it's, a- it's hard. You know, it's hard for for any app to know where to draw that line. You know, and I don't know. I don't know that I've drawn the right line necessarily. Time will tell. People, but, people are nuts about the whole cup of coffee thing. You know, like, <laughs> oh my god, I can't yeah. believe you won't do this thing. It's the same thing as a cup of coffee. But there's this weird. I don't think it's that crazy though. There's a weird psychological thing where you somehow don't even want to pay a dollar. I do it. I spend a dollar willy nilly here or there to buy new apps just to see what they look like. But I, you know, I'm I'm an I'm an outlier. I'm, I don't look at software the way normal people do. I think it's kind of normal that people see 99 cents before they even get to see if the app really works on their phone as as a risk. And oh, they yeah. just don't want to take it. And there's a number of factors here that 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 you know make the coffee analogy not work. Um and, and you know part of it is like people have been burned a lot in the past by bad apps and like they've paid for an app that was not as good as they wanted or didn't do what they thought it would. And then they're just out that money. I mean, you can, you can like email Apple and request a refund, but most people don't even know that you can do that, let alone how to do that. And they would actually go through with it, you know? So, so for the most part, you're just out of this money. And so that's, that's no good. I'll bet that even, even on platforms where refunds are easier. And I think windows phone, is still the easiest. Windows Phone makes it really pretty easy to initiate a, a, a refund, and it goes through 
I forget what the time period is. I don't know if it's an hour or a day, but let's just say it's an hour. You download an app. You pay for an app. You download it. You load it on your phone, and you don't like it. You just go back to the app store, and you say, I want a refund, and the app is removed from your phone, and the developer never gets the money. It's almost like it, like the transaction doesn't even happen. Right. Um, and I do think, I think it would be great if Apple implemented that, but I'd, at this point, you know, if they haven't already, I don't think they ever are. Um, but I don't, I still don't think that would get people over the hump. I don't think it would do much. I think it would be, con- it would be better than not having it at all, but I don't think it would get people over that psychological hump of giving over a dollar before they even try the app. Right. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't do that on the Mac, like on the Mac where I, I you know, I've, it's a different environment and we've had previous expectations. Um, when something is available only in the Mac app store for a paid price and there's no trial, right? I probably won't buy it. Right. Like I expect a trial on the Mac because there have always been trials. And a lot of times these apps cost like 30, 50, $7,500. Uh, it's very hard to justify spending 80 bucks on an, on a fancy app that you've never tried before that you can't try. Um, when, when refunds are difficult, <laughs> you, know, like, you know, that's a very hard thing to do. Paid web apps have never really become a thing for various reasons. Yeah, I mean, they um, have like in, in like certain verticals, right? But, it, term, but not like gen- a mass market thing, right? And I think that the but what they have done though is that they've still they've reinforced the idea that for something that you see on your computer screen, you should be able to just check it out first. And of course, for a lot of people, it's turned it into everything should just be free, period, forever. Um, And that's a separate argument. But I still think that the thing that made indie software development possible on the Mac and and had this great, still great, I think the reason it's still great on the Mac is that you can still go to developers' websites and download a, a demo. Exactly. Even if you eventually do go to the App Store to buy it. Well, and, and another thing that's different about iOS, and, and another reason why, like, the coffee analogy does not work, um, is, yeah, you can say, well, you know, you you would spend $3 on coffee without thinking about it. That's true. But there aren't people giving away coffee that's pretty good for free right. on every single street corner. Right. Like, like imagine <laughs> if Starbucks made every coffee free. Yeah. If every, Which is, if, you know. on every street corner, you could walk out of any building anywhere or your house, you could, and on this corner of the street... There were people giving away pretty good coffee for free all the time. Yeah. Like then it would be harder to be a coffee shop that charges for coffee, right? <laughs> like it it isn't about the amount of money, it's about the competition and the alternatives. And the fact is there's so many apps. There's so many apps that it doesn't matter that you're charging only a few dollars up front. The fact is there's 10 free ones right next to you in the App Store and people will just pick those. Um, same thing applies to the web. You know, it's the reason why paywalls on the web don't often do very well is because there's just tons of alternatives that are all free. And it's like, okay, well, I can't read your site. Fine. I was doing you a favor by reading your site. I'll just go read someone else's site. You know, (laughs) and it's terrible, but that's, that's the reality. Yeah. And you're in that, like, just give me something to read right now. And it's too, too, if you could go read something that you're not as interested in, but it's only two clicks away, or you can read the thing you're interested in, but you've got to take out your credit card and fill in a form, forget it, you know? That's the big problem I have that I think paywalls face is that, that right now at this moment, even if you've got it in your back of your head that maybe, maybe this month I will sign up for the New York Times paywall, maybe. But in the meantime, at any given moment when you're just looking for something to read, you're just going to keep clicking until somebody gives you something that you can actually read. It's a little different with apps. But yeah. anyway, I think that the free app and then pay for it eventually, I, I don't know, I, or pay for it to unlock the rest of the features. And I, I, 
not that it's a, Overcast is the first app to do it that way, but I think it's played perfectly, and I think it's probably going to be. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. I hope so. I mean, and I, I wish Apple gave us more options in this regard because this model doesn't work for all apps. Like certain apps, it's very hard to know where to draw that line of, okay, what do you offer for free and what do you charge for? Because, you know, certain things, like it, it, it works well for like games, for instance. You can like, you can give away the first few levels and then have additional levels for purchase or you can, you know, do things with like, oh, you can get a power up that you, you can only, you have to unlock the game to get this power up. Stuff like that you can do. But think about like a calculator. Like, what do you do? Charge for like the nine button? Like, how do you? Where do you draw that line in a calculator? Like, how? Like, it's, true. it's it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to do, right? Uh, and with all credit to James Thompson of PCALC, who I think originally made that joke, um, but you know, it doesn't work. For, so, like, Apple has a has a rule against time bomb demos. Like, you can't just say, all right, you can try everything in the app for a week and then it stops working unless you pay. Like you, right. you actually can't do that by policy. Even um, for a free app. Correct. Even for right. a free app, you can't. I don't think do a that. lot of people know that. I think developers know it, but I don't think a lot of people know that. Right. And, and, and I think that rule, I'm sure Apple was well-intentioned when they made that rule, but I think that rule holds back a lot of, a lot of like trial wear, um, yeah, which might I, be their goal, but well, that's I, the effect I, of it. I think it's that hierarchy of Apple's priorities where it's, First, okay. Apple, second, their users, and third, developers, in that order. And it, maybe it's irrelevant to Apple. So one is out. Two, it's better for users if the app doesn't get time-bombed. So therefore, the apps can't be time-bombed because users are annoyed when the app that they've been using for the last 30 days suddenly stops working. I think that, you know, and 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 whatever extra money Apple would get from the 30% cut from the extra apps that would be sold if that was allowed, because it does work. That's the thing is, is time bombing, you know, done appropriately is a very effective way for indie developers to get let people try an app and then and then buy it. Yeah, but it's. Yeah, and unfortunately, that like for so many, you know, like the calculator, like there's so many apps where that is the best way to do it. Because the other problem is if you have something like, suppose you have a calculator app and there's some like, you know, certain like special logarithm button that most people don't need and you, you want to put that behind the wall so that only people who really need that will pay for it. Well, then most of your users won't pay for it, <laughs> you know, so that so then, then you have a very bad conversion rate of free to paid. Um, but if you like, you have to be careful what you limit. Like I, somebody asked me on Twitter today or an email, I forget where it's all, it's all a blur. Uh, at this point somebody asked me they were angry at the at the limitation i put in place and they said why don't you offer all features for free and just limit you to only subscribe to like five podcasts and i thought about that that was one of the options i considered the reason why i didn't do that is because when you set that limit first of all that would complicate things like if you only can listen to five podcasts what do I do when you import your OPML file full of twenty podcasts? Right, you know, like there, there, so there's there's problems with that right off. The and bat. if and you know, uh, right along that line, if it's really important to me as a user that you can import my hundred podcast OPM file, how could I know that that the app is even going to work for me? Right, exactly. So so that's problem number one. But then problem number two, you have to be very careful what you do here because anything you put behind a paywall. Most people will try to find a reason to justify not getting it. They will they will try to stay on the free side and try to not need what's on the other side. And so if I say limit five podcasts, 
and then I have all these discovery features that try to promote new podcasts, <laughs> and people uh, stay uh, far away from them yeah. because now they're now they have to pay. Yeah, right? now like, well, no, I, I don't like. Then what I'm doing is I am discouraging people from trying out new podcasts. That's a terrible thing to do. Why would I want to do that? Right. Like, so you have to be very careful what you limit because whatever you limit, you're going to then strongly discourage people from crossing that limit. So that's why I've limited things that are basically power user features that don't really have a major downside that most, if you don't get it, like I've limited a uh, number of playlists. You can only have one, you know, number of items in a playlist. It only displays the top five. Like these are things like, you know, power users will care. Most people won't. Um, playback speeds and the effects and uh, cellular downloads. Those are all things that power users would like to do, but the app is very functional without them. And so like that, I I feel like those are safer limits to put in place. And I mean, who knows? I could change all these next month if it doesn't work out. But, But I feel like that's a, those are like safer lines to draw than I'm going to make you not want to listen to more podcasts in my podcast app because that's terrible. All right. Let me uh, take this break, take this opportunity to thank our next sponsor, our good friends at Harry's. Harry's uh, provides high quality men's shaving stuff at a great price. Um, whole point is it's, uh, I've told you this before. Um, the founders were some of the founders of Warby Parker, the eyeglass company, same basic idea. They looked at the market. They said, Hey, everything on the market, why is this stuff so expensive? Why can't we make good stuff at a way lower price? Same thing with shaving. Uh, you buy blades from Harry's and they're half the price of the equivalent blades from uh, like Gillette or uh, what's the other big company? Yeah, uh, Schick, is that? Schick, yeah, there you go. The I'm, ones I'm, that I was always a Gillette person, so that's the one I was familiar with, yeah. Yeah, I was too. I don't know why. Um, and that's what I can compare it to is, is Gillette. And it's the same type of quality to me where it just feels like a nice quality blade. Here's how seriously these guys take it. This is what I love. I love this story that they bought their own razor blade factory in Germany um, so that they could control the sharpness and strength of their blades. They're not just like white labeling generic razor blades and putting them in a stylish package. Uh, they have you know, really, really control over the quality. Uh, and I love the design style of their stuff. I don't think it's just cheaper than Gillette. I think it's actually better looking than Gillette. To me, like the the blade that I got the 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 razor I got from from uh, Harry's, it looks to me like I could be using it in twenty years and it would look just as new and just as stylish. Whereas Gillette's, you know, like uh, uh, architecture or uh, uh, what do you call it? industrial design. To me, it looks so trendy. And it's, you know, it's like, it's like looking at the Transformers movies. It looks like, you know, by next year, it's going to look like you're using a 2013 razor. Um, the price, the price difference is truly, truly significant. Uh, I think it's like two bucks to get a bl- for each blade with Harry's. It's even it's less like, if you order in bulk. I think it's like a dollar fifty if you get the big pack. Yeah. So get the, and, and Gillette, it's, you know, it's like even at Amazon, it's like three fifty four dollars a blade. Um, yep. And the quality is, I'm telling you, it's there. I, I, I use it. Uh, you you switched to using it, right? Yeah, yeah. I've been using it for. Uh, this, they sent me the sample pack when they when they sponsored my shows. I, I've, I'm almost through it. And I think I'm gonna order more. I, I the handle is is amazing, and the blades I would say are uh, probably I would say on par 
uh, yeah. with Gillette Fusion Blades, which, which are my, my previous favorite. And at half the price, uh, you can't beat it. Handle was the word I was looking for when I was trying to just yeah. choose between you know razor and, and blade. That the you know the handle, the thing you stick into it. Yeah, I have handle. a secret pass as a shaving nerd. <laughs> I have a brush and everything. Yeah, I, I used to <laughs> double the double edge safety razor and the blades from Israel and everything. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> this is good stuff. It is not. I should just, tell you something, but I don't use it anymore. It's not just me telling you to go out there and buy this uh, cheaper shaving stuff. I'm telling you, the quality is there. It's really good. They're very, very serious about it. I really do. I like it better just because it's me. And it, it's, it, I remember you said this on ATP this week. There's like a heft to the handle. Yeah, exactly. It's very nicely weighted right. uh, in a way that the disposables from Gillette and stuff, well, and even the ones that they don't call disposables, they, they pretty much are. They, they, like, I feel like the Gillette one, like, it just needs seventeen blue LEDs to complete the aesthetic. It just—it looks like a Transformers movie poster. Yeah, it's it just—it's—it's it's like see, it's like the very first droid ads. Remember, they were like yeah, all like yeah. like tacky masculine robot crazy they even, stuff. They and, did. They actually had like they had like laser beams and stuff yeah, and like weapons. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> you always feel like there's yeah there's going to be a laser coming at you. I there's a, a trend and I love it where um, um, I've been getting more sponsors like Harry's where they're not technology at all. This isn't an app. It's it's you know a real physical product and. I think it's a great market because I feel like my show, my website, um, you know, and yours, Marco's, you know, an ATP. It's it's not about tech really because there's mass market tech sites that I think have a wildly different audience. I think the audience that I have, that you have, this audience, is more like people who care about nice things including tech, or maybe even especially tech. But what they really are interested in is nice things. I'd rather have one nice thing than 10 mediocre things. Um, and Harry's, to me, fits exactly in that line. Where here's the thing where if you go into a typical drugstore, you have zero choices that qualify for that. Go online and get it there. Go to, here's what you do. Go to harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Use this promo code, Talk Show. They didn't put the the in there, but uh, that's not that's not hold it against them. Just talk show, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-W. Um, and you will get five bucks off your first purchase. Uh, I don't I can't see why anybody would do this, try it out, and then not just sign up and and use this stuff henceforth because it's cheaper and better. I, I, how do you beat that? Even the so box my, is nice. Yeah, the box is it's, beautiful. It's like, it's the, like all the packaging is really nice. Like, wow. Right. I think that the the when they first sponsored the show, they sent me a handle and three blades, and I've since reordered, you know, out of my own pocket, you know, the the replacement blades. Uh I didn't even want to throw the empty box out from the first set of blades because that was so nice. But yeah, that's just I my feel stupid... bad throwing away the, the boxes. I mean, I it's do, my... because, you know, but I have to because it's right. But it, I feel it... bad. Like they're really nice. Right, because next thing you know, twenty years from now, you're you're you know the crazy person with forty years or twenty years of uh, shaving cartridge boxes. Right, just trying to figure out like what what can I put in here? Yeah, you know, like everything that's like small and you know a trapezoid. You're like, oh, let me, <laughs> I can right. I can put my screws in here. <laughs> right, to me that's as good a sign. That's when I knew that it was the real deal. I knew as soon as I opened up the box, I was like, oh man, these guys have, have got it going on. Uh, the other great thing, I just had one other thing, and I actually thought about this when you, when I was listening to ATP this week, and and you you know you did your read for Harry's, um, uh, with the cheaper blades. To me, one of the big differences in my life is I remember when 
when I was in college and I first even had to start shaving and I didn't have money and I, I would use shaving blades forever or too long. Uh, what a difference it made when I started. I woke up and it's like, you know what? You, you don't use them that long. Go If you pay less for them, you'll, you'll use them less and use a fresher one more often. You don't have to yeah, sweat that's, it. This that's much. actually a nice trick. Like I, I read back when I was a shaving nerd, I, I there was like this one post that kind of stuck with me from a guy who was like, you can basically shave however you want with whatever blade you can find as long as you use a new blade every single time. And if you use a new blade every single time, you're you will like if you have sensitive skin, which I do, like all those problems will go away. And I've never been that extreme. Um, because blades are expensive usually, you know, especially in my years as a Gillette owner, you know, I'm paying, you know, three seventy five a blade usually. It's it's expensive. It seems wasteful to throw those away every time. Um but when when the cost goes so dramatically down like it does with Harry's, it becomes more plausible and more practical to only only keep a blade for like three or four shaves. Yeah. And it's I'm telling you, it makes it makes a nice difference with every blade I've tried. Yeah. Um, you know, to to not try to extract a month worth of use out of a blade. Um, and if they're cheaper, you can do that. Yeah. I actually shave more often now because I have a Harry's. That's a, I can say that I'm not even just say that the sponsor read is over. I'm just saying that that's actually the yeah. truth. And they even, their cream, like I, I've tried a lot of shaving cream. Cause again, I'm, I've been this shaving nerd. Um, and, and the one I found was the best for me was the pro Rosso, uh, green variant. I would, and I've tried many others, trendy ones like the the Taylor of Old Bond Street and like all the fancy boutique ones. I would say the Harry's cream for me was number two, and, and really I've tried a lot, and it did it didn't quite top Pro Rosso for me, but it was really close, and yeah. uh, that's saying a lot. It's nice and simple, gets the job done. Nothing fancy. Yeah, it's not made. It doesn't look like a blue laser. Yeah, exactly. It looks very tasteful and modern. <laughs> Yeah. Looks like what shaving cream is supposed to look. And the funny thing is too, since I since I visited their site recently, now I'm seeing their ads and all the Google AdSense boxes all over the internet as I browse, and their ads are so much more tasteful looking because <laughs> they're you know it's it's the graphical banner version because Google you know that whole thing when Google said oh we're not going to do banners you know right. originally yeah, of course that's out the window now, um, right. and so now I'm seeing nice like <laughs> trendy beautifully designed Harry's ads on all the websites I visit. <laughs> They are. They're nice ads. So there you go. You'll improve your ad viewing experience as well by checking out <laughs> Harry's. The side benefits, you know. Uh, but anyway, great product. Glad to have them on board. And, and you're nuts if you don't try them. Um, I'm not doing you any favors trying to keep this show short. <laughs> well, that's good because I feel terrible. I feel like I've taken up – I mean, you're a very busy man with a brand new app, and I've taken up eight hours of your of your uh, Thursday night. Well, I believe me, I'd rather be doing this than answering uh, what is now – 1139 emails i believe that's about 45 more than we started we could, we could measure the length of the episode and how many emails have come in <laughs> to the overcast support mailbox yeah and it's it's just about midnight eastern time I, I like i mean obviously these people aren't all in u.s eastern time but like to still be getting this rate of emails now do you still oh, use man. you just use email for support it's just because it, it's just you i mean why not right I, I have in the like with Instapaper, uh, I hired somebody to help me with support. You know, just a and when you did that, did you still use email or did you switch to some sort of, um, you know, like online system? For know, like a, a while, um, I would just I just gave him an email address and gave him hosting, and it just went to his inbox because it was just one guy. 
And so that was, you know, that was fine. And then after a while, he said, hey, I, you know, I'd like to try some of, some of these tools that are out recently, you know, see if they're easier. Like, okay, sure. So um, he tried uh, Zendesk, I think, was the one we ended up going with. He tried a couple of them. I have, I've used a few of these tools before, and I, I hate all of them. Like, every one I've ever tried, I've hated. What's the one from uh, the other the guy who co-founded Stack Overflow, Joel? Yeah, Fogbugs. Fogbugs, yeah. right. And I, I used that, actually. That was what Tumblr used for a long time. And I, I hated it in different ways, at least. Um, what's nice about that one is that it's free if you have a small team, which is really nice. At least it was you know, six years ago. I think it still it probably is. Um, all of these products try to do too much in, in different ways. There, there are very few that are focused only on just answer support emails and tweets like that. Yeah. That's all I really need. Um, even if you leave out the tweets, even if someone else doesn't, even if you could do email, like that's that'd be great. The problem is, it's very hard for any of those things to actually be better than email. You know, it, email is is a very old, mature, and very versatile tool. You can do a lot with with just email, and you know, a lot of things like all the like I still email things to myself from my phone because it's easier than X, Y, or Z, or it works better, or it's more more robust, or I can do this extra thing if I need to with it. Um, email, for all of its problems, of which there are many, for all of its problems, it is a really good generalist. Yeah, and so I agree with them. I, so anyway, so for now, I'm just using email. I in the future, and, and I'm using text, text expander to help a lot with some of the snippets, like some of the common stuff, saying this is a known bug, thank you, you know, stuff like that, um, or like my email signature, you know, it's, it, it helps to have all that stuff be uh, be uh, helpful, you know, helpfully automated. But I've never, I've never found one of these tools that if you're just one person, obviously, email has problems when you try to scale to multiple people trying to address the same support inbox. Um, then, then, it, then I, I definitely suggest using something else. It also is kind of inconvenient if you hear from the same people a lot, because like the the fancy systems they'll they'll be able to like bring up oh this person emailed you before yeah. and they'll they'll show their previous emails along with yeah. their like a know. sort of CRM type thing yeah right. yeah so you know if you have certain certain needs then you need something else um, but for just one person answering their own support inbound requests for an app that you know like I'm probably not like once this all settles down I would I would estimate I'll probably get fewer than 20 emails a day for it hopefully much fewer than 20 i'd love to be under 10 um i that's obviously a total blind guess out of my ass i have no idea but uh, i assume that's going to be the level i'm talking about and so for that it's like is the complexity of another system really worth it because these systems they all have you know they have these web interfaces that are slow and and clunky and i don't know I, i i'm a big fan of native apps i like I like a lot about native apps. And so like just being able to just do this all on my email client, which I'm already very fast at using. I, I just use mail app, you know, it's not, not anything fancy. I've been using mail app for years. I know it extremely well. I'm very fast with it and it works everywhere. I don't have to like get a, a different app for each device because I already have mail on all my devices. And so it's like, it, it's, it's just, it's just easier in so many ways. If you're just one person answering one inbox for it. When I was at Bare Bones, and this is, you know, 12, 13 years ago, you know, early, the early 2000, 2000 to 2001, 2002, um, and a, a lot of my job was, you know, help pitching in on the, the support queue. We did it all, at the time, we did it all by IMAP, even though it was multiple people. Yeah, shared IMAP folder. 
But it worked for a few reasons, which was, A, the only people who had access to it were, were all trusted. There wasn't anybody who, who was uh, you know, doing support email who wasn't like a truly trusted employee. Um, and B, it was this really simple system where nobody you, – you didn't answer anything from the inbox. Everybody – we just made top-level folders for each of us, you know, like, you know, John, Rich, and, you know, whoever else was, was – doing stuff, Patrick. Um, and you would, you know, if you were going to, you know, I'm going to do support for the next hour, you would just dig in, go through the inbox and drag any messages that you were going to take to your inbox. And, you know, your it wasn't even an inbox, but your box. Yeah, your and folder. answer them from there. Yeah. So your folder should almost always be empty, except for maybe like one or two flagged things that you were, you know, hey, I need to, I got to go, I got to go talk to Rich about this and get an, you know, I can't answer this. I, I'll write them back now. And say, hey, I'll get back to you later. But I actually don't know the answer to that. You know, I'll keep it. But it, you know, by the end of the day, your yours should be empty, and then and then nobody would be double answering the same email from the inbox or something like that. Yeah, and and that kind of system, you're right. Like you know, it when you're in a when you're in an environment where like you know everyone's trusted and everyone's like you know able to do their able to treat it properly, uh, then it was yeah, super simple. simple, and then everyone can use their own app. And there's no like weird additional, you know, third party thing to integrate and pay for and support and move with and then migrate off of when they go out of business. And it's just, it's, yeah, I mean, email, again, for, for all of its problems, it's really good at a lot of things. Yeah. And, and more, more importantly, it's good enough at a lot of things. Yeah. And it, I also like that you kind of know what the customer is going to see from you. I mean, you don't know exactly how they have their font set up in their mail client or whatever, but if you just write them an email, you know, it's going to look like, you know, all their other email. It's not going to be some weird, you know, HTML formatted thing. And it's not going to have a whole bunch of, um, auto generated administrative stuff, you know, that to, yeah. to reply to this message, please include this, text in the subject line yeah yeah all that crap <laughs> and you know make sure you write your entire reply above this line you know and yeah these and like customer like hostile experiences yeah that you're you know they're writing to you they're your customer and you're giving them all these rules to follow about not changing the subject and um you know make sure it makes for god's sake make sure everything you write is above this line and stuff like that uh you know it's just an email just text here you go here's your answer um, I guess we should cover the news. Why don't I do my last sponsor? Why don't yeah. I talk about our last sponsor? Yeah, yeah. It's our good friends at Hover. You guys know Hover. I use Hover. They are the domain registrar that does not suck. Uh, quite possibly the only one. Uh, it's the best way to buy and manage domain names. So when you have a great idea... You want to get a domain name for it. Guess what? Really, really hard because it's hard to find a good domain name because so many of them are taken. Hover has some great tools for helping you find domain name that's available and that's going to work with the name that you have in mind. Whether it's trying other top-level domains or whether it's combining other things before the top-level domain to get something that you like, um, they're going to give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Uh, and you can trust them. One thing I've got to tell you, domain name registrars are so scammy in general that I have never trusted before I started using Hover. I never trusted using their tool to see if a name is available because I always suspected that half of them would just, if I say, hey, is, you know, uh, you know, is uh, 
you know, marcosnewcar.com available, that they're going to register it and then hold it hostage to me because it was available, but they know I want it, so they took it. Yeah, it's it's unfortunately, right. it's a business that's full of opportunities for sleaziness. I don't know if any domain registrar has ever done something that scammy, but it, the fact that oh, it occurred have. to me, it, it you know, with Hover, I'm telling you, you can trust these guys. They've been in business forever. I mean, I think like all the way back to the 90s. Great reputation. Just search the web for what people who use Hover say about them. Uh, great tools, great service, customer service, including uh, what they call the the what do they call it the white glove service, the, the valet, valet transfer, transfer. Yeah. valet transfers. Right. They, this is what you do. You sign up from become their customer, and you have a domain name probably at a shitty registrar. Really, you know, let's. I'm not going to name names, but you know who it probably is. Uh, it's really hard to tricky to transfer domains, especially because most of us aren't DNS experts. We can't really remember the exact step-by-step -step thing of what you do. And DNS is a thing that you can screw up. You can screw it up, and it's a pain in the ass to fix it once you've screwed it up. Uh, use Hover's valet transfer service, and they'll walk you through the steps. They'll help you transfer it. They'll even transfer it for you. And you move it from your crappy registrar to hover, and that's free. They just take care of that process for you just by you paying to become their customer. It's just included in the price of being a hover customer. Great support. Um, they have other things. They have volume discounts. That's a new thing that they're offering. Um, they give you a discount on domain renewals starting at just 10 domains. So if you've got, you're like me and, you know, like an idiot every time you have a good idea for a domain, uh, even though you've only started like one website that you've stuck with in your life and you just keep registering them, um, but God forbid you let anybody else take over them, they'll help you out with this um, discount on renewals if you've got 10 or more. So what do you do to check them out? Easy, easy. Go to um, hover.com. H-O-V-E-R. There's a promo code. Use this promo code, and um, here's what you get. There's a sale. You'll get 10% off your first purchase by typing the promo code. This week's promo code is IBM. I-B-M. Just type that in. They'll know you came from this show. You'll get 10% off your first purchase and all new domain extensions are on sale through September 1st. That's all these crazy new top-level domains. Um, here's some of the ones that they've got there. They've got .club, .ninja, .guru. God, don't sign up for .guru. Uh, .company. I would go as far as to say don't sign up for almost any of the new TLDs. <laughs> but they weren't great for all the old ones. <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, .ninja might be cool if you're using it ironically. Um they should. They, is there a dot parking lot? They should have a dot parking lot for fans of uh, ATP. <laughs> Not and, yet, but I'm sure. I'm sure there's some committee that's trying to add it right now. Head over to hover.com. See the full list of all these crazy new top level domains. Um, there's hundreds of new options. A lot of great names are still available, and they're on sale through September 1st. And use that uh, code IBM, and uh, and they'll know you came from here from my show where where we talk about IBM every week. <laughs> of course. I love that, like, obviously that code is not used by anybody else. 
Like that's how irrelevant IBM is to the consumer web yeah. these days. Is like that they can just throw that out there. No one's going to use that code. <laughs> I wonder. Uh, I, I think that's part of what had me so head scratching about the whole IBM Apple news this week, which I guess is really the only news. I don't know. Is there anything else you want to talk about? But not really. Yeah. Um, is why why is this why is it, even Apple presenting this as such a big deal? Right? Because Apple put out a big press release. And they made Tim Cook um, available for a bunch of interviews, you know, which to me is the bigger sign that Apple thinks it's a big deal. If Tim Cook is going to spend the day talking to CNBC and the Wall Street Journal and a bunch of other things, uh, a day of Tim Cook's time means it's important. And I, that's, you know, my thought, and this is just one of those things where it's like it didn't instantly make any sense. Not that it didn't make sense, but it didn't make sense to me why it was a big deal. I think... I mean, I, I don't know anything about the world of enterprise computing. And thank God for that, because the little bits of it that I've touched here and there, I've hated. Uh, I'm very badly suited to it. <laughs> if that, like, I'm not saying it sucks. I'm saying it sucks for me. Um, although, let's be honest, it probably does suck. But anyway, um, I think there's there's probably a lot of value in Apple making a big deal out of this in all the ways that consumers will never hear about or care about, but that businesses will. Because the whole point of this is to try to try to push the iPhone and iOS platform more into business and make it make it kind of fight fight the notion that, that has plagued it for a while, which is this is like only for consumers or it's it's inferior for business purposes to things like Blackberry. Um, you know, they they're trying to fight that that perception, and and that perception has been declining for a while as iOS devices have been pushed into business anyway, just because people wanted them so badly, and they they kind of were forced to adopt them, and the, and then iOS got better with with some of its enterprise stuff, but ultimately that perception is still there among a lot of like IT managers that oh the I, iOS Apple stuff is not is not for business, you know it's not it's not ready for the enterprise or whatever you know whatever yeah. crap they, they spew out. I- I think that's true. I've said this before. It's like a recurring thing I come back to every couple months because something else will pop up or it occurs to me. But it's that human beings are psychologically set up to make first impressions difficult to break. You know, and and it's a cliche to say first impressions, you know, are super important. And they're, you know, like when you have a job interview, you should do, you know, get all stressed out and do all these things right and dress exactly right and answer all the questions right and have a good handshake and all these things. But you know what? It's one of those cliches that's kind of true. And I'm not saying it's fair or it's right, um, but it matters. And so people's, and it matters not just for your impressions of people, but your impressions of everything. And if your first impression of Apple is that they're not for business and it was reinforced for a while, it doesn't matter if it was it's set back in 1996 when it was a, almost literally a completely different Apple. It it still stands for some people today. Yeah, you know? definitely. And and a lot of those people are IT managers at big companies. <laughs> yeah, know, and I think so true. I think so. I think that's exactly true. Um, yeah, and so you, that, you that's know, why I'm saying like you know Tim Cook going around doing all these like BS interviews with business people about business things. I think it's all about attacking that. It's all about like getting out there and you know a press release. Well, what consumer is going to give a crap about a press release? Right. No one. No one's ever going to hear about it. You know, like my pizza guy who asks me about Apple rumors every time I get a pizza. Um, 
because he reads all like he reads like all the worst Apple rumor sites. So he always <laughs> asks me about all the ridiculous, like the most ridiculous rumors possible. Things that are so ridiculous you won't even comment on them. I get every I time I get pizza, which is pretty often, I I get asked about those things, and and you know he's never going to hear about this ever because it is so unimportant to even consumers who are interested in Apple never going to cross his radar. But the business community, this will be like, there's going to be a white paper somewhere. There's going to be like things the business community needs, like sources, you know, references. Oh, well, this is apparently getting into business. This is, this is something that, that IT managers can show each other and the CF and the CTO and, and the CEO above them. Like they can show each other and everyone here, we should maybe consider this. Here's some supporting documents to, to support this. You know, it's, it's all about placating the needs of the business world in using their language and, and their methods of, of communicating. Yeah. Tech, even, even at the enterprise level, it moves fast, but it, it tech moving fast at the enterprise level is a hell of a lot slower than it moves at the consumer level. Yeah. I'm pretty sure my bank still uses Windows 2000. Well, right. That's a perfect example. Like, God, <laughs> how many ATMs are out there that are right. still running crazy old Windows systems and stuff like that? Um, uh, I I just saw a thing about ATMs like Win, Windows ninety eight based. Now maybe they, maybe it was a POS system. I don't know. And, and it, sure I know was. that yeah. And I know that the uh, target the target hack was based on a crazy old ancient version of Windows that they'd still been rolling out in brand new target stores. You know, decades later. But it does. You know, it compared to the world at large, it still moves fast. But it's it's easy to miss because it's so much slower than the daily um, barrage of tech news that it's easy to miss the trends until they're already in the rearview mirror. And I, f- I kind of feel like what, what Apple, this Apple IBM deal is showing is it's sort of stage two, the beginning of stage two of Apple's renaissance in the business market. Stage one was just getting iPhones and iPads in it all. And it's literally what they've bragged about for the last few years is the percentage of Fortune 500 companies where iOS devices are used. And it's, you know, it's now it's up to like a ridiculous number. It's like 98%. But it's always been a little conspicuous that they don't say how many are being used in each one. <laughs> right. It's right. It's well, like a lot, so a lot of times, like they aren't officially supported. Like a lot of times, you know, the, the devices have gotten into these companies reluctantly because somebody in a, in a position of power got an iPhone or iPad and wanted to use it at work. And so then, then the IT department, which didn't really want to support it, was like, all right, fine. You know, the CEO got an iPhone and wants to use it. We have to do this. So we'll, yeah, you know, I, we'll, we'll support it in a, in a half-assed, minimal way, but we're not going to let everyone do this. I don't think that's what Apple's counting, though. I think when Apple says 98% of the Fortune 500 is using an iPhone, is using the iPhone, I think that they, they're, they're – I think Apple's honest enough that that means that they, honest, they have some kind of corporate relationship through the and Apple's enterprise, you know, salespeople – that that they can legitimately say that. Yeah, that probably. I mean, a company's that big, yeah, probably. But I don't think it necessarily translates to a high unit count or head count, right? I mean, just to pick one example of a company who I know is must be in the Fortune 500 because they're the second biggest company in the world, Exxon. You know, so let's say, assuming Exxon is part of that 98%, does it mean there's a 1,000 people with iPhones in Exxon? Because that's not that big a deal because Exxon probably has, you know, tens and tens of thousands of employees. Um I think that that stage one, though, is just getting any relationship at all. Maybe it's, you know, like you said, maybe it's just the C-level people. Maybe it's just like, hey, the CEO wanted an iPhone, so officially 
you know, anybody who, who works in the CEO's office can use an iPhone, but like the rank and file of tens of thousands of people, you know, still you're, you're using whatever, you know, I don't know, Blackberries or something like that. Right. Um, I think stage two is about getting that number bigger. And Tim Cook kind of alluded to that in one of his interviews, that it, that there's a huge – that, yes, we've got this huge number of Fortune 500 companies doing it, but that there's tons of devices and, you know, of various – you know, whether the phones or PCs or whatever that could be replaced with iOS devices um, and that there's huge upside there in terms of just sheer numbers. And I think that's what this is about. Yeah, maybe. I mean, to some degree – Having like using iOS devices as like custom work terminals or like you know like my UPS guy hands me some kind of crazy ass thing to sign digitally when I when I get a package delivered. Yeah, and you know the idea of that someday being an iPhone or an iPad, I actually have a hard time buying that because the characteristics that that businesses expect if they're going to do something like that, like they're going to expect a platform that is highly customizable to exactly their needs and stable and will basically bend over backwards to support them indefinitely. None of those things are Apple's strong points or even Apple wanting to do those things. Like, like Apple is perfectly happy to like drop support for old things, lock down control, all sorts of, all sorts of, um, of characteristics that, that let them produce good devices um, as long as you fit within their needs, but also tend to shut out corporate needs uh, like that. Yeah, well, I think that's, though, it, it potentially plays to Apple's traditional strengths, though, where Apple has never been about selling all of anything, uh, you know, that they don't need, you know, that's what Microsoft was always about. Microsoft wanted every single computing device in the entire building to be running some version of Windows, Whereas Apple, I don't think is going to shoot for that. I don't, you know, if Apple would say to UPS, you still want to have all, I mean, I wonder how many UPS, how many UPS guys do you think there are, like the delivery guys? Oh, I don't know. Probably, I don't know, 30, 40,000. No idea though. Totally I don't, out of my yeah, mind. Yeah. It's one of those terrible like job interview questions. I, I was going <laughs> to guess 25,000. So I don't know. That, that's just a guess. But, you know, let's say 25,000 of them. Uh, so let's say they have, I don't know, 30,000 of those signer things because they want to have more of them than they have people. Um, and they say, you know what, we don't really want to use iOS devices for this for X, Y, and Z reasons. I think Apple would say, okay, that sounds good. You know, but if, you know, what about if every, every manager at the depot centers where they're dispatched was using an iPhone and using an iPhone app, a custom iPhone app to manage whatever he did, he does all day. Uh, I think, you know, if that's all they got, that would be great because it's all upside for them because they never sold anything to those companies. That's a good point. You know, that the, it, only the places where you could see the need for a $500 iPad, you know, but if it's possible that a $500 iPad would make sense for you, and it totally makes sense that maybe for a, a UPS delivery guy who's got a really physical job that a $500 device with a glass screen um, – or even, you know, a sapphire screen, it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's not durable enough, and it's too expensive when it's to replace when it's broken. Um, but there, there's still all sorts of opportunities where an iOS device might make sense. And never, you know, it's all upside for Apple because they never had anything, no foothold in that market. Yeah, that's fair. I, I asked today, I don't know if you saw it, you were real busy today, but I asked today... Um, yeah, I've had a thing. Uh, well, my, here's my question is 
Yeah, where where Tim Cook said he uses an iPad for eighty percent of his work, and then I, uh, which I think is you know I think it's interesting, and I kind of believe him. I, like I said, I don't know that I'm sure he didn't scientifically measure or have somebody follow him around with a stopwatch and measure how much <laughs> time know, he spends I, on it. The, the biggest red flag to that that sounds suspicious to me is text input. Like, does he use a keyboard? I doubt it. I mean, that wouldn't look very good. Um, you know, how, how does he manage text input? Does he just send a lot of very short email responses? Because I would well, imagine the CEO, I would imagine a big part of his job is responding to email. That's a good question. I would think so too, but maybe he'd, you know, send short emails. Steve Jobs sent short emails, you know. I, I think Steve Jobs, his latter, his latter years, an awful lot of the. Remember when those email, those those Mac rumors things would oh, come yeah. up. Some some random guy on the internet got an answer from Steve Jobs. An awful lot of those <laughs> in the last few years were had sent sent from my iPhone. Yeah, I'd say most of them actually did. Yeah. Uh, so if Steve Jobs was sending a lot of email from his iPhone, I don't know that it's it's ridiculous that Tim Cook is too. That's fair. I always thought, as an aside, I always thought it was very noble that Steve Jobs kept that default uh, SIG on his email, which is terrible, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it kind of makes sense that it, that it would be Steve Jobs' signature, you know, like that. I could see that. Like that. It's that very fair. That's honestly very fair. Like, like, like when you buy a new Samsung Galaxy S, and and <laughs> the default SIG is sent from my Samsung trademark Galaxy trademark. <laughs> Six trademark uh, on AT and T LTE four G internet uh, from the now really... trademark network trademark <laughs> on AT and T trademark. Do you really think that AT and T's CEO is is using that signature on his phone? I, no, <laughs> I hope so, I but I doubt it. Yeah, I really doubt. I it. think it should be a rule that if if you if you are the kind of if you're at the kind of position where you can dictate a default email signature that will be used by thousands of people, yep. that you should have to use it yourself. I absolutely believe. Like in whatever that. the I, default is that you set, you should have to use it. Right. I I you know I believe in personal freedom and liberty, but I, <laughs> I would support making that a law. And you know what? There's an easy way that you can you can set your email signature to whatever you want by just shipping a default email signature that's a blank. Exactly. And ask them, you know, what what do you want to put at the bottom of your emails? Anyway, I always thought that was great about Jobs. So I believe it about Tim Cook, and I think it's great that he uses the iPad. Um, but my question, and it was prompted by the the great Contra on uh, Twitter, um, uh, aka Counter Notions, one of the great uh, anonymous uh, or pseudonymous, I guess, Twitter Twitter personalities. Um, does IBM CEO Ginny Rometty use an iPhone? And I'm totally serious when I say that I think that's an interesting and telling, you know, question. Do you agree? I, I think that would be interesting to know the answer to. I, it depends. If you could actually trust the answer, like, you know, if they just gave it in a, in a press statement, oh, yes, I've been, I use an yeah. iPhone, like, then you, I mean, that's probably BS. Who knows? But if, if you actually could get, like, authoritative like trustworthy information that says, oh, yeah, yeah, they've been using an iPhone for, for you know, months or years or whatever. Um, that's interesting to know. Um, but it's I think it's a, l- it's a little bit less interesting because IBM doesn't make phones, do they? I right. Don't, I don't think they do. So it's, it's well, a little bit less interesting because of that. But Right. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I think you're right, though. Like, that, that could show a level of caring that, like, you know, if the CEO doesn't even use an iPhone, how committed... Is you know how how much does this new partnership really matter? Like, what is this really likely to actually go anywhere or not? 
you know, if the CEO doesn't care deeply enough to even try it themselves. Right. Uh, and if their own enterprise, cause you know, IBM itself is, is like a, it's like a fractal, like where their, their business is, you know, consulting and services for the enterprise, but they themselves are like the canonical enterprise, right? If they're right. not good enough for their own enterprise needs, then, you know, Right, because they themselves are a massive company with very large needs. And, and uh, the conservative, you know, very, uh, yep. uh, technically conservative, not politically conservative, you know, but that that, that they still use uh, Lotus Notes and stuff like that. Well, they know, make Lotus that, Notes. Well, and they Awful. still use it. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and again, and, and I think that, I think their conservatism technically, I mean, partly that's what they sell, that, that is their product. It is also their culture, and that's that's why I think this is interesting at all. You know, if if Apple had a partnership with somebody smaller or somebody more dynamic, uh, it would it would be less interesting. The fact that they're partnering with IBM is more interesting because it, it is so opposite of what you would expect. But then when they explain it and they say, "Oh, well, you know, we have no overlap. This makes sense," then it's like, "Okay, yeah, I, I kind of get that. Okay, that that does kind of make sense." Yeah, I don't know. I just think it would be telling. Like I said, I don't think it, if if it turns out she doesn't, if she uses something else, um, you know, which my question, though, is at this point in time, and maybe that's telling about the state of of the mobile world, how crazy is it? In a way, it seems crazy to think that the I president or the CEO of IBM uses an Apple iPhone as her phone. Well, what but, else should she use? Yeah, exactly. You know? What else should she use? BlackBerry? I, you know, BlackBerry is, you know, clearly on the way out and just can't do things that people expect to do on a mobile platform right now. Yeah, I would say like two years ago, BlackBerry would have still been a plausible guess. Right. To, like, and like two years ago, there was probably still a lot of like, you know, quote, business people who are still clinging to their Blackberries. I have to imagine today it's getting much more rare to see a BlackBerry yeah. actually in use by somebody who like by somebody who just bought a new phone. It's like, yeah, I got a new phone yesterday. It's a new BlackBerry. Like, how, how often do you ever see that? Even even now in the business community, I have to imagine that's extremely rare. Yeah, I've I've never seen somebody using the touchscreen Blackberries. Yeah, neither and, have and, I. And I, you know, I don't fly frequently, but I fly frequently enough, and, I, you know, that would be a place where I would spot it, and I'd never seen it. I still see people with the, the buttony ones, but fewer and fewer. Yeah, they're but, dying uh, out know, quickly. Well, it's, it's so it's possible she uses a BlackBerry. Uh, it's I would guess it's probable she at least used to use a BlackBerry. So maybe she's still holding out. But it, you know, w- wouldn't that be a distressing sign though that that the CEO of IBM is still holding onto a BlackBerry, which is clearly a, a dying platform? What else? Android? I don't think so. Why would it make sense? Why would it make any more sense for the president of IBM to be using an Android phone than an iPhone? I mean, if anything, I think it would make the most sense for the president of IBM to use one of those, like, Stallman phones. It's just all Linux and crazy stuff. Like, do, do, do those still exist? People still try to make those? I think there's people trying to make them, but I don't think that they would work in the enterprise at all. I mean, I think there's a security angle there, but I don't think there's an integration with, uh, yeah. you know, all the software that they have to integrate with that's going to happen. Can those even get certified to run on a network? I don't even know. Probably not. That's probably incompatible with being open source. I bet they can't do it. Yeah, I don't know about that. I don't think so. I've never heard of any company that's that's using those. It seems to me like the people who that appeals to are security experts, you know. Yeah. And I think there's a that's a it's a, good it's a very small niche. <laughs> yeah, it's a great argument for, it, <laughs> yeah. but it's not I don't think it's something that IBM would use yeah. or standardize on. 
Um, you know, and there's a bunch of people on Twitter who answered my question and said that they don't know, but that there are people in IBM using iPhones and that there's a lot of people who work at IBM who use iPads on a regular basis, that there is a lot of dog fooding in that regard within IBM. You know, and it makes sense. IBM, the it, what most people think of them as is not what they do anymore. You know, most people think of, of their days as a computer manufacturer. Right. And... That is not their business anymore. They have gotten rid of, I believe, that entire business. I don't think they have any parts of it left. Nope. Um, they are a services. They are an enterprise services company. Yeah, and I don't so, even think they might do servers, but I, 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 th- I, I don't think, think it's they more... even do that anymore. I've, I haven't seen an IBM server for sale in a long time. Well, and if they do, I think it's. I think it counts more as consulting than server sales. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, and I think when you buy, if it's if they have them, I'll bet it costs way more for the service contract and everything than the actual hardware. Yeah, and they, and like I I don't think you can just go buy one IBM server from Amazon. Like I I think you'd have to like yeah it'd be involved anyway. So you know they have all these like services. You know they they will they will contract to your business to build your CRM system for you, like stuff like that. Like that's or you can use a big Lotus Notes installation. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know most of what they do because it's, I don't, I'm not in that industry, but that's that's like the high-level version of it, basically. And uh, and it's like, if that's your business, then yeah, it helps It helps to some degree to primarily sell your stuff when you have something in, in a certain market. You know, if, you know, if they have their own their own document management server, then it makes sense for them to sell that as much as they can as, as part of these uh, deals. But if the business world is demanding integration with iOS devices, and if they don't sell iOS devices or something like iOS devices, it totally makes sense for them to address the demand and not be religious about it. Not be like, oh, we can't deal with them because, you know, they're Apple and we used to be enemies. Uh, You know, they, the fact is they're not enemies now. uh, And, I, Apple and IBM are in extremely different positions now than where they both were respectively in the early '80s, and uh, and IBM is no longer like they don't they they have no reason to care whose phones they're selling anymore, right? And in fact, well, I don't think they should care that it's any one particular one, but I can see why it would appeal to them to sell Apple because Apple, you know, is is a single source that would make it easier for them than if they did were doing the same thing with Android. Well, right. And and, and, and if there's demand in these companies, you know, the same way that so many people, you know, brought in iPhones because they wanted to, and then they made the company support them afterwards. If if there are compelling reasons for companies, whether it's employees who want to use iPads, employees who already are using them anyway and want them to work better and be more integrated at the company's networks and stuff, um, or just you know things like deploying custom iOS devices as part of you know the UPS guy tools or whatever. If if the businesses are demanding that stuff, it is in IBM's best interest to work with Apple to to offer that to integrate that into the contracts and the services they're providing otherwise, because that's what their customers are demanding. Yeah, maybe it, you know part of the fallout of this is isn't really even about Apple at all, but really about the way that IBM is not the IBM we've always thought of. And I knew that, but this is just sort of crystallizing it. I mean, the only people who should be upset about this are Microsoft because this this is their right. business before. This is exactly like this is the business that that I've argued for a while that Microsoft should be getting into more heavily. They already have a very strong enterprise division, um, and and certainly I I assume I I don't know this for sure, but I'm sure Microsoft is is probably IBM's biggest competitor for enterprise services. That that might not be yeah. true. Certainly they're up there, 
Um, and, and enterprise services are a great business for that kind of thing because it's a big, profitable, relatively stable industry to be in compared to consumer tech, which is very hard and fickle and low margin usually. So, right. So, you know, Microsoft should, this is what Microsoft should be doing, but they're not, uh, for various reasons. And I think more than, more than anything, it's a sign of the times, not that Apple and IBM are working together, but that there's a major enterprise partnership that does not involve Microsoft at all. Yeah. Well, that should be that, scary to them. And, and not just the partnership, but that, that, that the landscape is changing in a way that such a partnership could exist without Microsoft at all. Exactly. Because even if Microsoft weren't involved at the enterprise sales level, it, it still, up until very recently, still would have implicitly meant everybody who was getting one of the devices was getting a Windows PC right. and the custom An office app, license. The custom app that was being written would be a Windows app. Exactly. Or, and, and, or at the very least would be an app that runs on Windows because maybe a small part of the trend over the last decade has been web apps, you know, even in the enterprise. But, of course, you know, Windows isn't cut off from that. Right. And there are, once all those web apps usually run in IE in these businesses. Right. But once you're talking about iOS apps, now you're talking about something where Microsoft is just completely out of the out of the loop. Yeah, they're not, cut out. Not involved they they in are completely all. irrelevant to right. to the solutions that it, like any 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 product or solution that Apple and IBM will work on together will almost certainly not involve anything from Microsoft at all. It will almost certainly only serve to make Microsoft stuff irrelevant and and, and, and unnecessary. Yeah, I, like I said before, this I think this is all upside for Apple, and every additional, every time this works, and IBM makes one of these deals that gets iPads and iPhones into an enterprise, it's all upside for Apple. It's iPhones and iPads; they they'll they will sell now that they wouldn't have sold before. Maybe it'll be a huge increase. Maybe it'll be like you know five percent increase in iPad and iPhone sales, six, seven, eight percent. I don't know. Maybe it'll be small. Maybe it'll be one percent. But every one that sold is upside. But at the same time, it's almost probable that everyone is a loss for Microsoft. Right, because these these are all tasks that Microsoft stuff was was mostly was almost all used for right. before. Right. Maybe with the phones, it's not because Microsoft never really had a big phone thing. But people are now using their phones for things they previously used to have to use a laptop for. And certainly anything that you use an iPad for in these situations is something that would have otherwise been a Windows PC. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I think that's that's really really a big deal. Yeah, this is this is probably one of those things where you know in, in a year we're gonna we're gonna, we will have forgotten about it, but then like in five years we might look back on this and say, oh that that was the start of of a big shift. Yeah, and I think we'll probably see it like me and you who don't enter the enterprise at all physically. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't think they we'll, would let us in at this point. Yeah, I don't think so either. Even I if think, we wanted but, to, we couldn't get in. All right. We would encounter it in as slides in a Tim Cook keynote, where <laughs> right. instead of instead of talking about what percentage of Fortune 500 um, are using iOS devices, it's going to switch to something like percentage of mobile devices in Fortune 500 company, right? That, yeah, that, yeah. Because that's something they've never talked about. But uh, if that becomes a sizable number, that could be huge, right? Like even if Apple just gets twenty percent, twenty percent of all mobile devices in Fortune five hundred companies, that's enormous, because it's also almost certainly the most expensive twenty percent of the mobile devices in the Fortune five hundred company. Almost certainly. 
you know, and that's how Apple, that's exactly how Apple's come to dominate the revenue and profits in the consumer and in, in the consumer side of the market is just by taking the 20% where the most money is. Yeah, it seems to be working well so far. <laughs> it's yeah. a pretty good strategy. All right, I wanted to keep this show short, so let's let's wrap it up. All right. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to talk about? Anything else on your mind this week? No, nah, I'm just trying to get through now uh, 1,147 emails. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the count for the episode? I think about 60, something like that. <laughs> yeah, and the good uh, thing is for the listeners that uh, because of the way that both of us talk, um, I would expect this episode to be about forty-five minutes shorter in Overcast. <laughs> I think we're gonna have to split it in two, but they'll, you'll still save the both. You'll still save the forty-five minutes <laughs> as you get through both episodes. You're gonna really boost the uh, the smart speed total stats with this episode. <laughs> <laughs> um. Where can they go to find out more? The website is overcast.fm. Yep. All right. The Twitter account is overcast.fm. Yep. And, of course, you are at uh, marco.org. That's and, right. Uh, marco Arment on, uh, on Twitter. You can save, save five characters, and you're just Marco on uh, – what was the other thing we were using for Twitter? Oh yeah, app.net. Yeah. App.net. I, is that still up? I I really wanted that to work, but I think it was hopeless from the start, honestly. I, yeah. I think it had it had a good run. Like it had a longer run than I expected for it. But you, uh You guys had a, a great dissection postmortem. And sadly, I think postmortem is the right word um yeah. on ATP about it and that it's it was I think it was sort of a uh, and, you know, and you can apply, you can circle back to what we were talking about with free apps and paid apps and stuff like that. But there's something about a social network where pay first was just never going to work. And yeah, never, and, never and got it's the also, mass. it's very hard for a social network to have something else created that is extremely similar to one that's already successful to have that new one take off. Like it, it has to be like app.net was not different enough from Twitter. And I know and they thought they were. But the but the product that most people saw wasn't. Yeah, you know that's a that's a common problem when you're on the inside of a product or service is that you're so intimately familiar with it that you can you sense in your bones that you're different enough to matter. But it, if if right. that, but and you you're right. I'll bet they're right. I think that they're a hundred percent right that they were different enough to matter. Um, but sadly, it wasn't different enough in a way that was obvious from the outside and so thus to everybody else it didn't matter yeah exactly it's yeah, a very it, common problem though that, yeah it, you know, and you keep yelling to yourself in your head no look it's like youtube for dog videos it's totally different than youtube <laughs> and you know, everyone's like well why don't we just put our dog videos on youtube <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's exactly the same problem well and part of it like you could build weird other apps that were built on the app net in infrastructure that you could never build on Twitter but Correct yeah but but th that was all stuff that was not only added later but also stuff that was just it just never got a foothold it wasn't really addressing right. pressing need that a lot of people had and and the whole model of like having to pay for an account for so long before they had the free thing. Yeah, it um, never gave people a reason to sign up for it and it never gave the people who did sign up a reason to keep using it. And it never gave developers enough of a reason to require it to build those cool promised apps on it. Like the the cost of requiring it was so high because you you then have all your customers who had to then get app.net accounts. Like it it was a that was a big burden to place on on those apps, so that very few apps ever got made for it that were compelling. Yeah, 
And by the time they came out, it was too late. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think their best chance at that point was if Twitter had imploded um, in terms of, you know, like the way that there was like the sense that the, Twitter was really burning all of the bridges with third-party app developers. Right. Like if, let's say Twitter had just completely pulled the plug on third-party APIs and it was use the official Twitter client or don't use Twitter at all. There's a chance that some number of us might have switched a lot of our daily chitter-chatter to app.net. Nah, they, we still wouldn't. I, I, I think it would take a bigger implosion than that. Like, I, I think if Twitter did what Facebook does now with their timelines, where All right, Facebook, yeah. Facebook, like, you can't... I, I don't... I'm well, combine, combine, it with the, combine it with nuking the third-party APIs. They yes. nuke the third-party APIs, and the reason they nuke the third-party APIs is they want to do Twitter, Facebook-like things with the feed. Right, where like they they don't show you everything that you want to be seeing, and they so show that you way things they can, you don't want to see. Right, and that way they can then go over to business accounts and say, oh, even though you've earned a million followers based on your merit and what people and people who want to hear from you, we're we're only going to show about ten percent of them what you post unless you pay us. That's what Facebook does, and yeah, like it and and it confuses the crap out of people on Facebook, but they don't care because. You know, Facebook was never a well, great place to follow what was being posted. Um, if Twitter did something like that, that fundamentally changes the way the product works, uh, then that might anger enough people like us uh, to leave. But it, it would take some. But even that, like even that example, might not be enough. It you have to like really do something majorly messing up your product and permanently messing up your product before enough people would leave yeah. to make a difference. Well, I think there was a time, you know, a year ago, where it seemed like Twitter might have been not teetering on the edge of that, but maybe looking longingly in that direction and, you know, stroking their collective chin and thinking, hmm, maybe. Uh, I still wouldn't put it past them. I mean, yeah. Twitter, like, God knows what Twitter will do next month. Like, it's always... It's such a crapshoot. Their their leadership has been so erratic. tumultuous. Yeah, and, er, and erratic is a great word for it. It's like you never know what Twitter is going to do. They they have always had this great product that was that could be made into a much more monetizable product by ruining it. And so far, they've kind of walked the line of trying to only minimally ruin it. And they they fundamentally don't understand their own value. Nope. And they also <laughs> don't I think they also fundamentally don't value their own employees because there are some great people working at Twitter, you know, people who have been working there and, and have left, uh people who I know are still there on the design teams who are, you know, just have great track records and clearly aren't being um you know, listened to and not and aren't given enough authority over the direction of product. Yeah, it's. It, I'm 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 shocked at how that company continues to operate, given how badly it seems to be led most of the time. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, longest wrap up ever. Yeah, right. <laughs> now I I might as well just tack on the uh, the ATP theme song. Well, then we, then we talk for another 45 minutes exactly. afterwards. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I think my single favorite tweet I saw today about Overcast was somebody, I don't know who it was, but somebody sent you a, a fake screenshot where there's the um, there's a setting where you can you can set how long the fast forward goes. Yeah, yeah. And, and they said, I thought it would have been like this. And it says 15 seconds, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, and then the last option is however long the ATP theme song is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, that, was, that was the tweet of the day. That was very good. 
God, I got to look it up and, and put it in the show notes. I think I retweeted it, so you could probably find it there. All right, I will find it there. Thank you, Marco Arment. You've been quadruply kind with your time. Anytime. All right. Good luck with the uh, overcast. Thanks. All right, I'm hitting stop. You are a saint. We should never be allowed to podcast together. <laughs>